0: We do have a scripture reading for today. It comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, verses nine through 32. I'm gonna ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 12, verses nine through 32. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value as a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I have the pleasure and blessing of introducing today's speaker. His name is Michael Achoa. Our very own, our, one of our elders, our <laughs> beloved brother. Um, I've known Michael for decades now, and he and Angie, and I, I shared this. Um, I remember meeting them for the first time, actually, at a, they came to, right after worship. We had a little newcomers informational session, and he and Angie came, and Caleb, um, it was the three of them, and yeah, just from the outset, It was just this stark picture of someone who wanted to know Jesus, to make him known, and um, got to know their family. And by God's grace, over the years, saw the faithfulness of this brother, became an elder. And so, if you come to the newcomer's lunch, be prepared, you might become an elder of the church. That, just want you to know that, so. I hope that doesn't scare you. I hope that makes you excited to come. Maybe it scares some of you. <laughs> but i um, more than anything else, Michael loves Jesus. He loves the church. He loves the lost. I think you'll you'll understand that when you talk to him and as you get to know him. And so thankful uh, for Michael who's going to preach God's word today. Let's welcome him.
1: Good morning. It truly is a privilege to be here with you all and to see some of you again, and um, some I haven't seen for a while, so um, I'm very just grateful for this opportunity. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, again, we uh, come to you. We ask your help, Father, in understanding your word, Father, and seeing it clearly. And Father, for the purpose that we might see you, Father, that if there's any lost among us, they might see Jesus. It's all-sufficient and all-glorious and full of grace and mercy. And, Father, even for our own hearts, Father, fill us with your spirit that we might see and love you, Father, um, in a better way today that we might experience you and know your grace and mercy in our lives, Father. And even as we head into kids' camp this week, Father, that it would propel many of us here, Father, and, and those serving faithfully, uh, Father, with hearts and, and looking upon these children, <laughs> learning about you, maybe even for the first time, Father, with uh, just through your eyes of compassion, mercy, love, full of mercy and grace, and we pray that they would experience that this week, and Father, and us through your word would see it clearly this morning, and we ask this in Christ's name, amen. All right, good morning. Um, the title of my sermon today is Amazing Grace and Mercy and the Unforgivable Sin. It comes from Matthew chapter 12, um, verses 9 through 32. And uh, it's a passage that's very dear to me and is one of the passages that ultimately has me here standing before you today, a passage that that brought me to a place where I actually questioned whether or not I actually could be saved. See, I actually thought I had committed the unforgivable sin. And a lot of you may wonder, what exactly is that an unforgivable sin? What could be so bad, a sin so bad, that God would not forgive it? Could it be the abominations that are talked about in the Old Testament? Could it be murder? Could it be, what exactly could it be? Um, And I hope that um, more than that, more than actually coming away with an answer to that question, we come away with a far greater question of who Jesus Christ really is. And I hope that we'll see that in our text today. And so I want to jump right into our text and to understand the importance and understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what this unforgivable sin is. um, We're going to start, and it's important we start with, one is revealing of God's amazing grace and mercy. Then we must see what is tragic, which is the rejection of this amazing grace and mercy and last, we must hear and consider what is the requirement of God's amazing grace and mercy. So we'll go ahead and we'll jump right in. And, but before we actually get to our text today, it's important that we look back in some prior texts and actually see um, uh, things that are incredible, things that are remarkable about Jesus Christ's life and ministry up to this point in the book of Matthew. And like I said, many years ago, I opened the pages of God's word and I was reading through it more like a book, more like a textbook. And I and, uh, actually got to this passage and it caused me to stop. But what was really important is actually the things that came prior to it, because it reveals a lot about who Jesus Christ is. And we see this not just beginning with Jesus's birth and incarnation, but with Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus being pointed, this Jesus of Nazareth being pointed out and declared to be the son of God. It's really clear to us in, in Matthew chapter 3, uh, verses 16 through 17, when Jesus is being baptized, um, the, the, our text, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, it reads, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending on, descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son son with whom I'm well pleased. This gospel account then reveals to us the the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit, actually fully resting upon Jesus Christ as he drives him into the wilderness. And then when he's in the wilderness, he's confronted after he's been fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he's confronted by none other than Satan himself. And Satan seeks to actually thwart the attempt of Christ to be known. He seeks to, to stop Jesus Christ from being known and actually stop Jesus from actually following the path that the Holy Spirit ultimately is driving him to is to redeem mankind by dying on the cross and bearing the wrath of sinners. And so Jesus' conflict starts early in, in, in Matthew's account of the gospel and, uh, and it declares that, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and, and faces opposition in this world. In a parallel passage, which follows right after Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus actually entering a synagogue and and immediately making himself known as the fulfillment of prophecy, fulfillment of many, many Old Testament prophecies, and specifically one from uh, Isaiah. And it it reads in Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 16 through 20, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and a scroll from the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. He has set me at liberty to those who are to set at liberty, those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And people were astonished when they read that, when he said that. They looked upon this man sitting before him in the synagogue and they were astonished. Who is this man? And what should have actually been a rejoicing at the announcement of the arrival of the Messiah actually turned to hatred and disgust, and they, d- they drove him out of the synagogue. But God continues to faithfully declare who this Jesus Christ is. And again and again, despite many attempts to cancel him, they, they're not successful. Matthew chapter 4, verses 7 through 23, we read next that from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In verse 23, it says, and he went through all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So that his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons and those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And throughout this amazing gospel account, Jesus continues to do that. Jesus continues to, to set the captives free, to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind, to, to, to cast out the demons of those that are being oppressed by demons. And we're talking real demons here. There's up, up to this point in scripture that we reach, arrive at in Matthew chapter nine, in all the gospels combined, it gives over 40 accounts, different accounts of him casting out demons. Satan's power and presence in this world is felt far and wide, especially in this culture, not wanting people to see the light of the Messiah. But even Christ himself would use that to actually, as part of his plan, and the Holy Spirit would use it as part of God's plan to reveal Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So we get to our text, and I'll read it here again for you says that Jesus, he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him? And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold and lift it out? How much more value is a man in sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch, out, stretch forth your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored and healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed with him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Jesus Christ, after previously sending out his disciples to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to to give sight to the blind, to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God, continues in this. And he enters. Previously, he enters this village, and his, as his disciples following with him are hungry, and they start to pluck ears of grain. And as they're eating it, the his, the the Pharisees from this village come up and they actually try to question Jesus. Like, look what your disciples are doing. This is a Sabbath. They're not allowed to pick grain. And Jesus has declared, he says that actually he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And they, they were filled with disdain. And I'm sure at some point they may even try to block Jesus. You can't come into our synagogue, but here Jesus comes all the way in to their synagogue and he begins to teach and proclaim the value of man, proclaim the value and worth of every soul. And Jesus looks upon in the crowd in the synagogue and he sees some, he's, as he's looking around, he sees somebody there, a man with a withered hand. And what that may look like, you know, it's, we're not sure today. It doesn't actually say what that exactly was, but I can't help but to think of my son, Caleb, who was stroke affected and partially paralyzed most of his life, actually all of his life in some way, but his hand was curled up and he could never open it, you know, and, and it was weak and definitely smaller than the other. And as I look upon this man in scripture and I see him, I can't help but think of my son and the hardship and the pain that he endured throughout all of his life because of those strokes and Jesus simply having a heart full of compassion and love asking that man, stretch out your hand. And it was healed. That man, so precious to Jesus, so precious, far more than that of sheep. And Jesus has that love for each one of us today. But the Pharisees would have none of it. And they drove him out again. Previously, they sought to destroy him by by throwing him over a cliff. This time, they said, how how are we going to do it this time? How can we destroy this man this time? And many followed after Jesus. And then what Jesus did next is even more amazing. People brought their sick And they're paralyzed, and anybody that they knew, they all came and came running and flocking and following after Jesus that they too might be healed. And Jesus incredibly healed them all. And I can imagine the line of people lining up, bearing stretchers of their friends and their family members who are sick, their wives who have been ill for so long, their children that are afflicted, and maybe even a dad carrying this baby girl with a blue face, running desperately, revive my baby. And Jesus did it all. What grace and what mercy, what compassion and what love. And then Jesus does something remarkable next. In verse 16, he ordered them not to make him known. That bizarre, don't tell anyone. Why would he do that? Verses 17 through 21 reveal this as an as an enunciation of a prophecy that Jesus would, even in his in telling them to remain silent about this, was to fulfill a prophecy. 17 through 21 reads, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Does that sound familiar? I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Matthew reveals the work of Jesus is actually this fulfillment it's actually in, in Isaiah chapter 42 through 53. It's known as the servant songs. And again, it's absolutely amazing to see this prophecy fulfilled right before our eyes in this page of scripture. But there's over 300 prophecies pointing in the Old Testament, pointing to and declaring Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, to be the son of God, the Messiah, the chosen one. Over 300 more The Old Testament was full of this, and yet people failed to see. I failed to see. Jesus would be declared, anointed, and empowered, and spotlit in his ministry by the Holy Spirit all the way to the cross. But Jesus did not intend for this miraculous healing and the power displayed to be some form of entertainment. He didn't, he didn't intend for it to be, to be like something that people would like, Jesus, can you do that trick again? He didn't intend for it to be that and he didn't want it to cloud any thoughts in anyone's head of what his purpose and ministry and healing people and showing God's compassion and love to, to be about. Other than declaring salvation has come to the world, his purpose in going to the cross. But there are some people like me who would say, no, I I need to see something bigger. Can can you add more explosions and things like that? And, you know, and then I'll be entertained. You know, then, then maybe I'll believe. Then maybe, but it's got to be better than the last one, Jesus. Maybe instead of this time of feeding 10,000, feed 20,000. Jesus didn't want that. And so he told people, don't tell anyone. But how could you not rejoice if you were one that was healed? How could you not rejoice like a parent whose whose child has been revived on the operating table and life saved? How How could you not rejoice if you were the one that was blind your whole life, an outcast and marginalized? How could you keep quiet? I can't be. I can't be quiet about what Jesus has done for me. So the third act, third miraculous act that we see here is when they bring, there's a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute and is brought to Jesus. Our text reads in verses 20 through 22 to 23, it says, a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spake, spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David. Jesus, so full of mercy, this man, mute, unable to speak, and blind, unable to see, not even able to express himself, tormented day and night by a demon, not able to do anything under its complete control. What a nightmare, if you think about it. What a, what a horrible, horrible state to be in. And Jesus... Demonstrating his power over the physical as well as the spiritual realms completely restores this man's sight, his ability to speak, and banishes this demon from his presence. This is utterly amazing, and it should leave all of us in wonder and in awe of who this man truly is. And it had that effect vaguely on these people that were in the audience that day. They questioned, can this be the son of David? But that question is not an absolute that this is the son of David. See, author and commentator D.A. Carson, in a commentary, he writes, he says that this falls way short of belief. He says that it actually reveals that they were none too sure of who this Jesus Christ is. And that brings me to my second point, which is this rejection of this grace and mercy. See, the people were indeed astonished, but they failed to actually believe on Jesus Christ. This term, the son of David, it's a messianic term that comes from 2 Samuel when when Nathan went to David with a prophecy of of God's fulfillment of his plan and purpose of being the Messiah, ultimately through David. David. And yet, here these people use that term, could this actually be that promised one? See, these people have eyes to see, and they have ears to hear. But it's not. An, it's for some reason because of the hardness of their heart, they don't fully believe it. Prior, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is traveling with a multitude of people, and there's two blind men. And they hear the multitude of people, and I'm sure they scattered around. Who is coming? Who is that? And somebody said, Jesus of Nazareth. And they said, and right away, both men, son of David, have mercy on us. They couldn't see him, but they believed that it was him. They didn't say, maybe you, are you the son of David? If so, have mercy. You know, they called out to him, crying out to him in faith. And Jesus restored their sight. Amazing, miraculously. And yet here are these people with eyes to see, witnessing these, the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. What happens? Oh, you know, he's from Nazareth. I don't know about him. What school did he go to again? I don't, did he graduate? You heard about his parents, huh? How they... Or, You know what? He hasn't spoken on taxes or the occupation yet. You know, inflation's through the roof. What's he going to do about that? I don't know. You know, I like this Jesus, but maybe if he did something bigger, maybe just a little bit bigger next time, then I'll say he's the son of David. See, their, their, their question actually turns is a soft rejection of Jesus. I'll think about it. I'll wait. Uh, I need to see more before I decide. And that's a dangerous place to be, a very dangerous place for any of us to be. His teachings weren't what they wanted to hear. He was non-regal. He was lowly of heart, and he was meek. And yet, he demonstrated the full power of the Holy Spirit in healing and overcoming demonic oppression and all physical ailments of men, the, everything. So the Pharisees respond. They don't like this question. Verse 24, it says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons that he, this man cast out demons. See, the Pharisees knew this name Beelzebul was actually a very vile, vile insult. The word Beelzebul, it means prince of devils or prince of demons, all, Satan himself. And it's, sometimes it's translated as being lord of the flies. And it's actually like the, the scholars believe that it's a use of the word Beelzebul, which actually comes from Israel's tragic idolatry in 2 Kings chapter 1, where it's referred to as Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron. It's also an intentional twist, twisting of the word baal Zebul, which means exalted lord. And yet, so they attribute this. They take this word and they mock Jesus with it. They, they say, this is, this, this is man is doing this stuff by the power of Satan. Don't listen to him. Stop listening to him. He's leading you astray. All of this stuff, it, it's, it's a trick. He's trying to fool you. And maybe, just maybe, that's, the world says that today when they look at Scripture. That's just man's words. All of that, the testimony of Jesus Christ, it just comes from man. That's not it. This wasn't the first time they did this to Jesus. They did it to Jesus earlier, but Jesus didn't confront them. This time, Jesus directly confronts them in verses 25 through 29. Jesus said, our text reads, and he knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house is divided divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan... He's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? They will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit... That, uh, that Spirit of God, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus confronts his belief and is indeed already plundering the house of the strong man, plundering the house of Satan, taking back those who are oppressed, taking back those who've been taken captive, by him and his, and his demonic like minions. Jesus is already doing that in a powerful way and more. So then in a loving warning, that this warning is which ignited that first spark, first spark of light in my own dark cell of addiction and rebellion and death, the Lord calls each of us He calls me and each one of you here today to ask this question, is this the son of David? And that brings me to the last point, the the requirement of this amazing grace and mercy. Jesus asked in verse 30, he says, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. See, our Lord, he doesn't just leave room for a soft rejection, or a maybe, or I'll wait tomorrow. He openly declares, he says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And that's hard. That can be hard for any of us. And it's meant to be because it is that kind of warning. It is a warning of life and death. It is a warning of eternal significance for each one of you. Who do you believe me to be? Because if you're not with me, then you're against me. And and it's a loving warning for anyone that would sit and think, you know what, I have time, I have tomorrow, I have that. Jesus is full of love and compassion when he issues this warning and love and compassion, even for these Pharisees who are denying him. See, he's not like me because I would, in my flesh, I would sit there and say, oh, I'm done with you, right? And, but Jesus is warning them and warning anyone in the audience with them. He doesn't leave place for any of us to be on the fence with, about who he is. He doesn't leave room to say, Jesus is just all right with me. He's not just all right. You're either you're for him or against him. And he also says, if you're not gathering with me, if you're not with me on my mission, if you're not part with me, then you're scattering, and I liken this to, you know, it's agricultural and what he's talking about, gathering and scattering. But I liken it to a, a, a librarian and a meticulous, beautiful library full of books, carefully with gathering books from the cart and putting each one back carefully, row by row in a spot so it can be found. And then two rows back, a mischievous child pulling each book down row by row into a just disastrous heap and mess on the floor. And it's not funny or cute. Jesus says, that's, that's scattering. And in the same way, uh, those that are not gathering in some way are scattering. He you say, that's not me. I, I didn't do that. I'm not doing that. Jesus said it. We have, to, we have to grapple with that. Maybe you're not in this, in this sinful life like I was. But we have to question, am I, am I with him? Am I gathering? C.S. Lewis, he, he doesn't leave any room for this in, in his revelation when he believed who Christ was. In his book, Mere Christianity, he writes, I'm not here. I'm here trying to prevent anyone saying the real foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him, his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. <clears throat> you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let, not, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying and unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. That's very straightforward. It doesn't stop here though. The Lord Issues another warning to us in verses 31 and 32. He says, Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus, as he's done this before, declares his authority to forgive sin. Not just some sin, but all sin. Incredible forgiveness for even the most abominable offenses for all who come to put their faith and trust in him. All that would believe on him. He would be the one to pay for my sins, to face and endure the the wrath of God that, that I deserve and that every sinner here deserves. He is the ransom and propitiation for our sins. Every blasphemy and sin. Even for those who nailed him on a cross, Jesus being nailed to the cross at that moment in time as they were being driven into his hands, these spikes declaring to his father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus would not have said it if that was not possible. He would not have prayed to his Father asking them to be forgiven if it was not possible. But it is, even that. But what won't be forgiven is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that brings me to my part, the part of my story. You see, in the summer of 1993, I actually opened up God's Word. It's hard to believe because I shouldn't have been there in the first place. But after a drug-infused conversation with friends, I had a question, a question arose about what happens to babies when they die. You see, in the summer of 1987, August 15th, 1987 to be exact, my daughter Valerie Devin Ochoa was born, but she was born with a defective heart. The day after her birth, and she was being ready to be sent home, they actually did a a test on her heart because they thought they heard her murmur, and they sent her to another hospital for more testing where it was revealed that she had hypoplastic left heart syndrome. I left work that morning, I got a call at work, and I was told to go right away to the hospital in San Francisco, where the doctors needed to talk to me. And the doctors shared with me the news, which I'm sure would be almost every parent here is nightmare, if not all, that your child is going to die, and there's nothing that you can do about it. They told me that her heart would stop working and functioning after two weeks, and there was absolutely nothing we, they could do. At that time, there was no repair for that type of surgery. We could just take her home and have her for two weeks, and she would die. That day in the hospital, was still in my addictions, still in sin, entrenched in rebellion, I called out and I cursed God. I blamed Him for what happened to my daughter that day. And I said the most vile things against him. And so as I'm reading through the Bible, many years later in the summer of 1993, I read through it all, get the summer of 1994, I'm reading through it again, still looking for answers of what happened to my daughter when she died. You see, my daughter was baptized by a Mormon in the hospital because my girlfriend's uncle is Mormon. And then upon taking my daughter home before she passed, my girlfriend's dad had a Catholic priest come to the home and baptize my daughter there. And I wondered, I said, what happened to her? What happened? Did she go to the God of the Mormons or the God of the Catholics? Or would God even forgive my daughter? Oh, would he let her into heaven knowing that it's my daughter, his enemy? It doesn't seem like that's something that somebody would do. I mean, I was that bad. And and yet would he would he let her in? And so when I got to Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, and I hear this phrase the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, not in this world or in the world to come. I, the question says, Did I do that? When I was in the hospital that day, did I curse God? Did I did I look at him? Did I did I believed that there was Jesus? I believed he was the Son of God. I believed that there was a God the Father. And I believed that there was a Holy Spirit. I believed that Jesus died on the cross for sins. I believed even that he rose again the third day. But I rejected it. And I cursed God. Did I do that? See, and I couldn't even read on to the rest of the passage or the chapter. I had to find the end. I had to. And again, the Holy Spirit, thankfully the Holy Spirit, went and let my heart let go of this. And again and again... And that summer of 1994, it just kept going and going. The unforgiveness, the wrath of God. And see, and, and it's incredible. I came under great, great conviction. And you know what happened? In my addiction. And it's crazy, in my addiction. And it, it, I would have these highs so high that I felt like I was going to die. And yet, even in those moments, terror would hit me, that I would actually die, and I, and I would immediately face God's wrath. What would I do? What could I do? And day after day, the, the conviction grew. This impending sense of doom, like God would crush me any moment. And of all things, on October 24th, 1994, up on a hunting trip with my friends, I didn't even want to get out of the tent that morning because I knew for sure. I knew it was going to be that day that one of my friends who's were partying and were drunk and were drinking and he had a gun. Everybody has guns, we're hunting, was going to trip and fall and I was going to get shot and, and immediately be sent to eternal torment hell, which I knew I deserved. Or we'd fall off a cliff or drive off a cliff. Who knows what could happen? But I knew it was going to be that day. So that day, I went away from my friends and I prayed. I prayed, God, if there's any way, any way that one little drop of what Jesus did on the cross, if it could apply to me, let it apply to me. And I surrendered completely to him. I said, I'm yours. With everything that I am, I'm yours. You can destroy me. I know it's coming. You can, or you can save me. Whatever you want to do, I'm yours. And I even prayed foolishly. I said, but I won't be able to stop drinking. I have to at least a 12 pack a day and I'll still have to smoke. And I'm still going to have to do these drugs because I've tried to stop and I can't stop. But whatever you want me to do, I'll do. And I'm yours. And incredibly that day, he saved me. (laughs) I can't explain it apart from God's grace and mercy. I can't explain it. He did it. He saved me. He redeemed me. He washed me clean by his blood. He opened my eyes that I would see. He gave me new life. He wrapped his arms around me and made me his child. And I can't explain that except for Jesus Christ going to the cross and dying for my sins. This Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, son of God, paying for the wrath that I deserve. I can't explain it. And he did that for me. And he could do it for you. You here today, you here that may be on the fence. I don't know if I believe this, Jesus. I don't know if I can trust him. <laughs> All sins forgiven. All sins except this. And this brings me to the really, the conclusion here. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What does that really mean? I had to look it up in the dictionary, but it's ultimately the full rejection of Jesus Christ after being revealed all of these things by the Holy Spirit and attributing them to Satan or just walking away in unbelief. That is what this really comes down to. And that is the unforgivable sin. But if you're like me, if you're like me and you're sitting here, if you were like me back in 1994, and maybe today you're sitting here and you've placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, or you think that there's hope for you, And you've called down. You said, no, I do believe that Jesus is the son of God. There's no question. If that's you today, praise God. Meet me after the service because I want to show you, tell you what's next. I'll pray with you and help you and point you further on your path in following Christ. I invite you to that. Jesus is calling you. He's calling you to believe in him and to trust him fully. And you can't, I have 28 years as a believer to point that out and prove it over again. And if I had time, I would. And if you're here today and you're a believer, somebody that's already placed your faith and hope in Christ, my prayer for you is that you're refreshed by what you see. When you look at scripture, I pray that God would awaken his spirit in you and that every time you open your Bible or you quote that memory verse yourself, you're amazed by who God is. You're amazed by his grace and it spurs you on to serve, to gather with him joyfully because it is a joy to gather with him. It is a joy to walk alongside him. It is not something that's not a, a laborious task. It is something to delight in. And all of you who have the privilege of serving at kids camp this week, God bless you and may you be blessed in your endeavor. May the power of God fill you with his spirit as you gather with him. And it's an amazing thing. But if you're in that place of unbelief, if you're still unsure, please talk to me and Pastor Sam, Fuji, Thomas. We'd love to share the gospel. I'd love to make it clear. I'd love to clarify any details of my testimony with you. But, but come and see me. Come and talk to me. Don't wait. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, what amazing grace that you save any of us, let alone me, the chief of sinners. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the word. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Oh, what amazing grace, Father, we bless you and praise you. And we ask you to be glorified in Christ's name. Amen.